Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. In the studio with me today is artist Laura St. Pierre, who is showing work at both AKA and Kenderdine Galleries as part of their joint exhibition, Peripheral Influence. The show opens May 6th with receptions at both Kenderdine and AKA. The reception at Kenderdine runs 7 to 9 with a tour with the curator from Austria, Denise Patrizic, at 7 p.m. And then the show at AKA runs 8 to 11. To my understanding, there's actually going to be a bus transporting between the two spaces to help people to visit both. This is a busy night for receptions. There's also receptions at Paved that same time at 330G, just down Avenue G off 20th at Void Gallery at the Saskatchewan Craft Council. And finally, Flock and Gather is also opening that night. Uh, So this is part of why we wanted to start a week earlier talking to Laura to start to bring a bit of conversation around these series. So thanks for being with me, Laura. Thanks, Michael. So Laura, to my understanding, you have some photographic works that are going to be showing at the Kenderdine space, and then a video installation that is new that will be showing at AKA. That's right, yeah. Could you just tell us a bit about those works to start? Sure. Well, so I've been working on a series ongoing for a couple of years called Fruits and Flowers of the Spectral Garden, and the series sort of comprehensive. There's an installation aspect, there's a photographic aspect and a video aspect to it. Basically, in previous work and with this body of work, I have an imaginary character called the scavenger that I work with. So much like, you know, writers write books. And I always love how writers talk about the characters that they create and how they sort of take on a life of their own. How in fiction, it's like, well, I got halfway through writing the book and I realized that so-and-so would never do this. And I had I realized the ending had to change completely and that they would do this instead. <laughs> so I kind of like that idea of creating a, a character that you work with that sees the world from a slightly different perspective than you do. So the scavenger honestly is not a very fully formed character, but certainly observes the world in a different way and sees usefulness and uh, in things that we often disregard, so spaces or objects or plants. At the time that I started working on Fruits and Flowers of the Spectral Garden, I was uh, had a studio in the Riversdale area, which, as everyone knows, is gentrifying and changing really quickly, and it's a huge area of contention in the city uh, as to how that area is developing. But what I part of what I love about Riversdale is the unkempt spaces, and you know, there's a vacant lot just a few doors down from my studio that was just had like amazing weeds and bees and insects and animals and <laughs> all sorts of stuff. So I started collecting plants from that vacant lot and other areas in Riversdale and preserving them in jars of alcohol, which is a method that botanists use to pre- preserve specimens, fleshy specimens. So usually they'll press the specimens, but if you want to preserve like an orchid or something that, you know, three-dimensionally, you preserve it in alcohol. So this is what I started doing with the plants. And I didn't really know what was what I was going to do with them. It was just this like overwhelming kind of urge and instinct. So I started doing that. And out of that evolved a series of photographs, videos of these jars where various things happen. And the installation, which used the jars and some old slide projectors, projected light through the jars to create some shadow, moving slightly moving shadow 
images onto screens. So this was shown as part of Nuit Blanche, if I'm not mistaken, in 2014? That was 2014, With yeah. John Bath was the Was collaborator. my collaborator for that project, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So very obviously light-based, showing at night in a dark space. And then, yeah. So how is this sort of transforming for the Kenderdine space? For the Kenderdine space, I'm actually showing photographs of the jars themselves. And the video work that I've been doing is more traditional video work, where I'm actually showing the jars and then things are happening inside the jars. So this has been a process of collection for a little while. And to my understanding from your work, you label where the works are collected from. Yeah, so they'll uh, scrawled on the jar or in the title, you'll see a street name or a neighborhood name or maybe a building or a restaurant that's close by. I think I have two that are called Wong's Noodle Factory. They're from this vacant lot right beside Wong's Noodle Factory in Riversdale. The scavenger sort of wanders and these were are, are and were important locations on the scavenger's paths, a path of wandering. And so um, a lot of the plants come from these areas that the scavenger frequents. So then is there commentary being built into this too then about the way that we're gentrifying and about the way that urban development is happening? I don't or? know that you can, I mean, I don't know that anybody would be able to read that looking at the work, but it certainly is there for me. I live in Mayfair, which is a bit of a scruffy neighborhood, as is Riversdale, and I enjoy that. I like that everybody's house looks different. I like that everybody does different stuff with their yard. There's no codes, implicit or explicit, as to how you can deal with your property. A lot of people are renting, so they don't look after their yards at all, you know? So there's all sorts of things. Lots of people are starting to garden, to make, to grow food, which is obviously super important with all the stuff we have coming down the pipes and the cost of gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, I for me, this idea of gentrifying is super complicated. And I, you know, I don't think the work addresses that directly because it that doesn't just deal with space. It also deals with people, <laughs> right? But yeah, for me, again, that vacant lot was just as beautiful as any park, you know? So then maybe not a direct approach to gentrification, but asking people to consider or reflect on the spaces in their city? Absolutely, yeah, that's a, that's a better way to put it. And I think that appreciating those little spaces, you know, instead of just seeing something as a weed, you know, what's the purpose? Maybe it's the first plant that comes up in the spring that feeds the bees, right? Or, you know, it's a place for birds to hang out where they cannot be attacked by cats in the neighborhood or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So then you talked about that sort of social aspect that goes along with gentrification, but when you're talking about animals or bees, there's also this consideration of the other lives that live in our city as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really interested in, in how cities develop, and I think Saskatoon's doing a horrible job. City Council, are you listening? Um, <laughs> of, you know, we're just creating more and more sprawl. I know the city has plans. I've been to some of their planning meetings, but, you know, it's not happening nearly quickly enough. Ways to maintain green spaces in the city in a way that are, that's, everyone can use them, in a way that they're accessible, encouraging people to do things like garden. I would love it if we could have chickens in the city. You know, just a more sustainable way of living, a little bit denser, more trans, you know, public transportation, all that kind of stuff is important to me. So then when you're talking about some of these spaces and how easily overlooked they are and the different lives that live there, it brings an interesting conversation about the way that your work is bringing attention to those and asking people to maybe not forget them. We've been talking a little bit before this interview as well about the about your work and about how you were mentioning how sometimes in constructing the work, people will notice you there as the artist. And as an artist, you're sort of given that space to make work. But the challenges that it can that can be presented in being someone 
existing in these sort of in-between spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that people are really uh, territorial, right? Even if it's not a space that you, like a, a piece of property that you necessarily own, people are sometimes very like, what's going on in my neighborhood? What's going on in my alley? What's going on in my... And, and anything out of the ordinary is really problematic, right? So like you said, I often... If somebody asks me what I'm doing, I'll say, I'm an artist, this is for an art project, and then they just kind of roll their eyes and go, yeah, yeah, okay, no problem, (laughs) crazy person, I'll let you be. But if you are a homeless person, you're not allowed to set up camp somewhere, right? Like, they've destroyed a lot of the homeless tents along the riverbank, for example, not that long ago. So how do we we live together? How, How do these common spaces or overlooked spaces or interstitial spaces, you know, how, how can we like loosen our grip a little bit on that and, and not be quite so, for it not to be so fraught for something outside of our current experience to happen there. Well, it's interesting too, when you're talking about the homeless spaces, there's this aspect to which they're bringing attention to the space or it's becoming part of our collective knowledge when we sort of see a homeless camp getting set up. Or Absolutely, because we'd rather think there's no homeless people here. We'd rather put them on a bus and send them to BC. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, everything is all, it's all tied in together, right? Well, and then, but your work similarly does an interesting job of bringing attention to that too, in as much as you're now setting up and you were talking about how sometimes you will assemble pieces or detritus or other items that you found on space, bringing things into, but at times also assembling with the materials that you're finding on a site. Right. Yeah. So that was in a, a body of work called Urban Vernacular. I haven't worked on it in a couple of years, but I would... Um, create these constructions, basically like dwellings or shacks or whatever in urban spaces and kind of insert these constructions into existing elements in the landscape or the architecture and often would use, yeah, materials that I would find there. And and it was interesting because in one case, all I added was fabric and a light. And there was all these other objects, pallets and these giant like steel wheels. I don't know what they were for. And, you know, there had been some kind of construction thing happening there that had sort of obviously stopped or someone was uh, offloading their, their extra bits from a construction site there without having to go to the dump. They were just dumping them in this vacant lot. And so once I made this all into, you know, this kind of lit tent situation, (laughs) boy, did I get a lot of attention from people living nearby. It was really interesting. It's interesting because it prevents people from being able to forget about the space or just pass by the space. Suddenly you're bringing attention and also to all that, uh, those items that are left so that people can't just walk past it anymore. For sure. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how much of a reaction that generates. Yeah, it is. It is. Like I said, I I think that people are very territorial about their homes and their neighborhoods and get very concerned when anything out of the ordinary happens. Well, and that territorial is a good thing. I mean, we want to have pride in where we live. Like we we want to care about where we live. It's maybe when it starts to verge on preventing new things from coming in or new ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's territorial when you decide how your neighbor's front yard should look. Or when, <laughs> you know, when you have opinions about that kind of stuff. For me, that becomes problematic. As you were speaking, like even when you're talking about the vacant lots where the plants that make up your current body at, in these photographs come from, there's one view that looks to kill what we consider weeds, to wipe out anything that isn't green lawn, that doesn't conform to certain standards that have somehow developed. Yeah, I'm not absolutely. sure where they've developed <clears throat> necessarily from. Yeah. But that have developed nonetheless and in many ways have become officialized. But to take another view of those, these plants can be seen as herbs. They can be seen as important in indigenous medicine sometimes or in other uses. Or as you mentioned, they can be used as 
the first pollinators for bees, you know, and yeah. or, the or first food, food sometimes. A lot of the weeds we could eat if we wanted, you know, we well, just don't want to. <laughs> I remember when I worked at the farmers market. Sometimes farmers bringing in weeds and being like, "Here's, you know, like something, and like this is what you pick, and this is how you eat it," you know. It's, right. Yeah, lost knowledge, and somehow yeah. that is. So that gets back to a bit of that discussion about bringing attention to these spaces, but then also about what the city allows. You'd, you'd mentioned you'd love to have chickens, you know. Yeah, I'd love to have chickens. <laughs> well, but I mean, it, like, just to, to interrupt, but going back to that vacant lot, you know, a couple times a summer they would come and just, like, just just mow it, but, like, raise it to the ground and just entirely. And for me, I almost felt, I felt the sense of grief, like, which is, you know, crazy, but, like, oh, man, like, you know, there'd be no more insect life, there'd be no... No more plants. It'd just be this like kind of dead, dead long weeds, you know. And so again, it's paying attention to what's there and what its role is in the local ecology and allowing it to thrive if it's thriving, you know. Yeah, it is such an interesting response to just tear it down, you know, and just yeah. sort of say like we're just going to wipe all that out because that's not what we want to see. It's not what we're used to seeing. Yeah, for sure. Then building from that to this sort of discussion about <clears throat> this exhibition, one of the pieces that was put out. The curatorial premise departs from the butterfly effect and the persistent influence of globalization. I mean, certainly big topics. I'm glad to see that the exhibition is now involving artists working on a local level, both in Vienna and then here, to discuss globalization as it relates to a community. That's how we generally experience it, is on that local level. But it's interesting to hear, So, you know, when you're talking about wiping out a swath of wildflowers, or weeds as we might call them, the, the idea of that butterfly effect and how there can be, as you say, you know, if this is food for pollinators, it, it has larger effects sometimes than we might realize. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think we're so blind to and I don't know if it's willful blindness. I can't f- quite figure it out. But to all the interconnection, you know, all, that everything's interconnected and, and how things are connected. And, you know, I would never actually think of my work in terms of globalization, but it is kind of an interesting perspective to take in thinking, OK, you know, there's you know how how does why do we why are we obsessed with lawns (laughs) instead of weeds you know why are we obsessed with having our houses and our yards and our homes look a certain way when we could be doing all sorts of other things right and and how and that's persistent throughout North America and much of Europe like how weird is that that the (laughs) whole world wants to live this one particular way it's bizarre yeah, and so then bringing these plants in, you know, putting them on display in a gallery is starting to sort of question that, right? And yeah, I mean, for me, it does. In thinking about this work, a lot of the plants I've collected in the past were sort of based on the paths that the scavenger would take through the city and the different parts of the city that the scavenger paid attention to. And now I think this summer, my plan is to start collecting plants from areas that are more specifically in danger so you know in our province we've got flooding we've got fires there's parts of this surrounding the city parts of you know land surrounding the city that is really ecologically important that the city wants to develop so I think I'm going to start going and collecting plants in those specific areas and tying them in a little bit more tightly to an ecological message that's my plan for this summer an ecological message and somewhat of a political message too in terms yeah. of how our city is developing yeah well just moving back to that discussion of the need of the city to uh, you know allow chickens or to allow for food to be grown or, or other as you're mentioning criticism of the way the city is developing yeah i don't mean to bring in an older project too much but i think it's an interesting to discuss a bit of the scavenger from your previous work in as much as 
there is this aspect, and you, you talk about this in some of your writing, is that the architects, the urban planners, they only are going to be playing one role in developing in the way our cities develop, and that is citizens. We also, we all individually play roles too. And I think it's interesting the way that the scavenger proposes an, an alternate way of development, building with detritus, building outside of official guidelines. And also existing in spaces that are overlooked, right? I mean, we're just gluttons for space. You know, we could live so much more compactly and there's all this, you know, I mean, there's tiny homes that could go in all sorts of little places. You know, we could take care of our homeless people so quickly if we looked at those spaces with fresh eyes. You know, we could deal with so many issues we have around food and all the, um, you know, we don't need to bring food from Mexico. We can grow so much food here in the three, four months that we've got, right? Um, So for me, those are things I think about a lot. And I understand that city council will often reflect, I think city council reflects a more traditional way of doing things, right, in terms of the bylaws that they have and all that kind of stuff. And it's up to citizens to say, hey, like, you know, we need to have chickens in our backyards. (laughs) We need to have, be able to grow food right up to the curb of the sidewalk and that kind of stuff. Well, and it's interesting, yeah, traditional for sure, but traditional in a very specific cultural context too, obviously. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah and I know that's yeah, what you're getting yeah, at. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, Absolutely. Well, thank, no, thanks for adding that. Yeah, traditional in a, in a very uh, colonial sense. Well, because if you think about a traditional indigenous way, there, would, there isn't yeah. the separation of land the way right. that we do it. Or yeah. there, and as you mentioned, there's use of a lot more, a lot more of the ecology than that piece that we've decided exists in our generally in our grocery stores yeah yeah for sure i think it's interesting the space that your work provides for that contemplation and hopefully for consideration by viewers in terms of how are we moving this space or existing this space yeah so as you were mentioning this work has developed over a fairly long period of time it's had in different spaces and your career itself has uh, you've moved a number of times so i'm wondering if you did your master's in at concordia yeah, I did my I did my undergrad at the University of Alberta, and then moved to Montreal to do my master's at Concordia, and worked there for a couple of years. And then I was offered a full time teaching position in Grand Prairie in northern Alberta. So moved there. <laughs> that was a big change from Montreal, and lived there for five years. And at the end of five years, decided uh, my husband and I decided we just wanted to come back to Saskatoon. <laughs> so we came back in 2013. I mean, I think it's probably difficult or impossible to say how those different spaces influence work but certainly there's a bringing in of different perspectives or different ways of living in a city when you're moving to those many different spaces. I think one one thing that hit me and it was especially the work I did in my undergrad and shortly after my master's was just this, the surplus of stuff and I think on the prairies like in Saskatoon and Regina we're really good at hiding the amount of garbage that we create like we have our black bins <laughs> no one can see in them and you know we put them out on the curb every other week or whatever but in Montreal for example people have green bins that you put out on the street once a week and you can put garbage out twice a week so three days out of the week there'd be garbage on the sidewalk (laughs) and people didn't put it in the alleys they just put it on the sidewalk and the garbage people would come pick it up and with these green open green bins like you could see you know like oh this neighbor had like 27 bottles of wine last week or you know like all this kind of stuff but it was interesting and it was constant it was just constant how much there'd just be more and more stuff because the living in the area where we were living just north of the plateau is very dense so densely populated so it was just amazing to me how much garbage there was so that really influenced the urban vernacular series and other works that I made out of found objects and garbage. 
in that kind of dense city, it's amazing how much different, how different you do react. I, I think even in Vancouver, how yeah, they have a similar recycling with open bins now. But at the same time, they're a city that drives their landfill waste three and a half hours out of the I, city. I know, it's crazy, right? And Montreal's an island. They have to drive their stuff. I think some of it they even drive over the border. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. It, so It's amazing the extent to which we'll go to to hide our waste too. Totally. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think for me too, living in different communities across the country was also really different. Like I remember arriving in Montreal and I was in a, you know, a small MFA group with, you know, people from all over the country and we all had our own artistic references, right? Like we had the sort of sup- art superstars of our own communities that we looked at, looked to and, and, and liked. And, but, you know, somebody from Vancouver would have a totally different set of references than somebody from Toronto and somebody from the prairies would have a totally different set of references that nobody would get. Right. That was, that was kind of cool too, to, to n- note that, um, our country, uh, you know, we have our big art magazines and you know, all that kind of this national conversation, but really so much of it is still happening at a regional or a local level. Yeah, that was something certainly interesting to me is that even, you know, with the internet now, that you still find out about artists by being in a community and those relationships that, that develop that way. Yeah, for sure. When I think, I mean, people making good work aren't always the ones that you see on the cover of Canadian art all the time. No, right? for sure. So... And how do you know about them? You know about them because they're the people that go to every opening and support all the younger artists and do that kind of stuff. Well, and also artists engaging on a local level aren't necessarily the easiest to project onto a national stage. Absolutely, yeah. But those conversations, as you say, need to happen. So, yeah. And they are, as you say, too, necessarily different local conversations, which also makes it hard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely been really interesting. It's also had its downsides. Like, I feel like every time I move to a new province, I have to reinvent myself. <laughs> Not reinvent myself, but maybe make myself known. Like after grad school, I spent a couple of years in Quebec and had some grants and, you know, was starting to build up my reputation there. And then I moved to Alberta and was there for five or six years and had, you know, was pretty successful at getting exhibitions and getting some attention from different curia- curators and, and um, funding bodies and stuff there. Then I moved to Saskatchewan. It feels like I, in a way, started over. So that's a little bit frustrating. And again, you know, we think of our arts community in Canada as being so, you know, this kind of unified national thing. But really, we do function on a provincial level in terms of who knows who and all that kind of stuff. Building those relationships again when you move back home somewhat or building new relationships For with sure. the new group that's here? Sort yeah, of? absolutely. Yeah, and uh, just, you know, who are the curators? I mean, like the Remy's and the Mendel or there's big flex there so there's all sorts of new curators there so getting to know them and I mean really we're in the middle of nowhere in a sense kind of need those those people to know what you're doing they don't have to love it or like give you your you know a big retrospective (laughs) but for them to at least know what you're up to and you know make that connection between the local community and the communities outside whether they be in Canada or internationally I think is really important I think they should view that as part of their job as well. I also think it's interesting to talk for our younger listeners about how you sort of started on this path, because it's a path that's of challenging work and critical work. And as you say, work that engages on a local level, which isn't work that you necessarily, as you mentioned, hear about in a larger circles necessarily that much. One of the most important things I learned in grad school was that uh, I wanted to make work that was interesting to me. 
And I read some quote Foucault said about how he didn't write for academia. He wrote for himself, just like a painter paints for themselves to okay. learn about their world. There's, I think, certain streams of work right now that are really popular. And I don't know if my work fits or doesn't fit. I mean, I don't really, I just kind of, I'm always challenging myself to investigate the world and, and make new work that I find interesting. And, you know, I also don't want to make work that's really didactic. You know, I think if you want didactic, you can make a didactic panel. So I'm always trying to, I do a ton of research and bring all these ideas in and they definitely feed the work and whether the viewer can, different viewers will get different things out of the work. And that's totally fine with me. I think that's way more interesting than work that's just read one single way. Well, that's almost more of a textbook sometimes too, you know, like <laughs> a view post on someone rather than asking yeah. them to join in a conversation, which is... Absolutely. But, you know, there are curators and there are art critics who would like just to have a one-liner that they can use that makes it easy for them, right? Well, I, I think that's where my reference of like how it's hard to sometimes get shown. I'm mean, Not that you haven't been, certainly, but I just mean it's harder to engage in work that doesn't engage in one-liner sometimes or that seeks to engage its local community in such a deep right. way yeah you know in terms of build you know but yeah. you, and you've also while doing that have received numerous larger grants mm -hmm. and so I, I guess I would just sort of say like what's that been processed what was that process like at the start if you don't mind me asking in terms of like for someone who's starting out looking to go on a similar path one thing that's always been important to me was that I have always found a way to make money outside of my work not to say that I don't sell work or that I don't exhibit work but I don't ever want to put myself in a situation where I'm just pumping out the same thing because I have a gallerist that wants that or whatever. I mean, if the right gallery came along and the right relationship came along, I would absolutely love that. But for example, when I was working on the Urban Vernacular series, I, there was a gallery that was in Calgary that was really interested, but they said it's like too big. Like, where would we put it? You know, some of those pieces are, some of those photos are eight and a half by 24 feet. A really important part of that process is that I have an, another source of income that's not my art practice. I do get grants. I do. I always work towards that. And I'd like to work less on stuff that's not my art practice. But really, it, I think it's almost impossible in Canada to expect that you're just going to go out and make money from your art. And if you do that, there comes with it some baggage. Some people navigate that very successfully and have a ton of respect for that. But for other people, it's easier to just find a way to pay your bills outside of your art practice. Um, you know, get the grant so you can have a space, so you can have your materials, so you can travel a little bit if you need to. And then you can really focus on the work that you want to make. That's interesting because I think that was when I came out of school, that was one of the things I think one of the largest misconceptions I still see it existing now for students coming out is that it's this idea that you can come out and be a practicing artist and that doesn't necessarily mean financially. And I think, yeah, I would agree with you. I think a lot of the time the compromises you need to make in order to be, if you want to be a full-time artist, mean sometimes compromising the work rather than, you know, maybe taking some time out, doing something else for a little while, but then being able to make the work that, as you say, is, speaks the most to yourself. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, any relationship that you have, whether it's with a gallerist or a curator or someone, you know, as artists, we're kind of at the bottom of the food chain a lot of the time. We shouldn't be, but we are. So you can put yourself, you can be in, you can find yourself in really compromising situations, and I've just not been interested in dealing with that. <laughs> Plus, fair. you know, I also like contributing to the community in other ways. I mean, contributing to, to the community with art that is a conversation, I think, is a, an extremely important 
thing to do but there are also you know if you can find the right job there are other ways that you can contribute to a community that don't involve your your art practice well especially if you have issues or if you have as you mentioned like say conservation or the use of land i mean there's a lot of different ways to go about that and art is certainly a useful one but it's not because you say the only way to engage with those issues for sure absolutely well, I just wanted to ask one question about the work before I forget. And that's sure. when you were talking about the sort of larger scale, when you talked about a viewer having more of a visceral, a haptic experience of the work, necessarily just a visual that you can almost feel of being there. Yeah. Yeah. I just wonder if you could sort of speak about that sort of aspect of your work and how. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the sensory has always been really important to me. And as much as I love the minimalists and a lot of the work right now that is coming, still kind of very minimal and maybe overly cerebral. I really love work that um, engages all the senses. So when I was printing these landscape photos with constructions or interventions in them, I wanted the viewer to be totally immersed. So it to, you know, them to walk up to it and to have it sort of encapsulate their field of vision. And so printing really big was a necessity of that. And it was, it's a really technically challenging thing to do digitally. Oh, for sure. So. <laughs> to have any decent resolution and to print that large. But I mean, that also was a learning process that was really interesting to me. So, yeah. All right. I'll I'll end on this question. Just one last one about your sort of practice. Your time coming back to Saskatoon, I think overlapped with my time leaving. So I'm still getting to know a lot about your practice. Just I've been back close to a year now. But as you say, it's one of those hard things sometimes when you aren't in a city to know about a city's work. But in your own practice, you, you aren't from my experience, are afraid to speak out on issues when, you know, like criticizing the development of a city or, or, you know, criticizing a gallery if it isn't properly engaging with its community. And I guess I would just sort of ask, how does that play into work? Or I would think that in that sort of process of building your career, that that can create challenges, and yet you haven't been afraid to go there when that arises. Yeah, when I think, I think that the political activist side of myself has become far more prevalent in the last few years and that's just partly uh, is coming back to Saskatoon and deciding that you know as a family we're going to stay here so when you're moving around a lot and living in other cities you know you're not going to stay I think you don't feel quite as attached to what's going on you don't feel quite as invested in the city and what's happening and now that I'm back in Saskatoon and in Saskatchewan in a permanent way I feel very invested and I have a son and I want him to grow up in a decent community and a decent society (laughs) that's not incredibly racist that is sustainable where there's there's a future there and a future that looks really good so you know that sounds super corny but uh you know for myself as well like i i'm interested in working towards the kind of city that i want to live in for me it it comes down to this idea too like as you say i think we care about a community when it it affects us personally and and when Mm -hmm. you decide and as you say when you put down roots in a community that's when you and it's important to build from that, right? And to build with a love for a city can also be meaning to criticize those things that you think yeah. are threatening a city. But it, I just, it, it can still be hard as an artist to do that while still maintaining, you know. In, I don't find it hard at okay. all. I, you know what? If somebody doesn't want to show my work because they take issue with my political stance, you know, then there's probably better opportunity somewhere up the road. And as I, as I, my career progresses, I become more and more particular about the circumstances in which I exhibit. Your work isn't existing outside of the space that it's being shown at. No, I I mean, I think those, I think that those, you have to start 
if you're if you are invested like especially if you're showing at a local level and you know what's going on you know then i think it's important to make sure that um your work is shown in a context that uh, is aligned with your own you know what you find important I've been speaking with Laura St-Pierre, whose work is being shown at AKA and Kenderdine Art Gallery as part of Peripheral Influence. This is an exhibition that started last year with a partnership between AKA and a gallery in Vienna, whose name I'm not going to try pronouncing, but this portion is being curated by Denise Perzek from Austria and involves a number of artists both from here and from Vienna. So again, the opening is May 6th from 7 to 9 at the Kenderdine Art Gallery, and then from 8 to 11 at AKA Artist Run. There will be transportation provided between the two spaces, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is in coordination with shows at, honestly, probably half the galleries in town. It's quite a busy night for those who are interested in seeing art. Again, my name is Michael. You've been listening to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM. And as we always do, a reminder that you can find us on social media. We're Unframed Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, if you want to listen again to this episode or any past episode, you can find our podcast at unframedradio.com or on iTunes. Thank you and have a good evening.